This week on The Defined Podcast, we speak with Will Warren, founder and CEO of ZeroX Labs, one of the largest decentralized exchanges around, as well as being one of the oldest. But before we go into ZeroX, we talk about the effect this bear market has had on the DEX ecosystem. How have sliding prices affected DEX volume in the past couple of months? Yeah, yeah, happy to. Um, so, you know, I, I think DEX volumes are tend to be somewhat cyclical, uh, same as like kind of the centralized exchange volumes. There will be some correlation and as the, you know, crypto market, you know, goes down or something like that, you know, there will be some volatility and volumes go up, but then they, they tend to fall. Um, but I think what is exciting in, uh, you know, what we're seeing today is that DEXs have real product market fit. Uh, there are a ton of different uh, use cases, tokenized assets that people want to be able to access or to exchange with others. And that kind of, you know, some of those use cases are also cyclical, like, you know, NFT markets. There's a little bit less activity today than maybe at the heights, but there is still like real demand to be able to access and to exchange different tokens, whether they're like, you know, fungible assets or non-fungible assets. And, uh, you know, it's it's pretty amazing that we're even at the current level of DEX volumes that we're seeing today. Um, if we think about, you know, 2017, uh, so yeah, we, we launched the first version of ZeroX protocol in August of 2017. And back then, like, you know, it was exciting for us if there was like $100,000 of trading volume in the entire day. Like I remember we had like, you know, I think a lot of startups or, you know, projects will do something where like they have a dashboard on the wall and every time something happens, it'll like, you know, make a noise. We were thinking about doing that for zero X protocol back in the day. Like, you know, every time like a trade trickles in, it would like make a noise and everyone on the team would be excited about it. And then if you look at like where we're at today, it's insane. Like the number of users, the number of trades that are going through DEXs just generally is very encouraging, I would say, uh, and exciting. I totally agree. I think um, just, I mean, the fact that we're seeing kind of real scale in, in DEXs is super exciting. Uh, and I do remember those uh, days in like 2017 through uh you know, early 2020, where DEXs were just like a tiny, tiny, tiny uh, drop in the bucket of total crypto trading volume. Um, but, you know, that percentage has risen to uh, a significant amount, like a, a, a decent chunk. Um, there, there are stats that show DEX versus centralized exchange volume at, you know, around 15%. Uh, so it's definitely becoming like a force to be reckoned with uh, for centralized exchanges, which, you know, have been traditionally just like the biggest players in crypto in, in general. And now, you know, DEXs are rivaling it. And just to give context, I, I have this uh, Dune analytics um, dashboard up uh, and it shows that in June, DEX volume was at... Um, a bit over on uh, a bit under 80 billion uh 
total, uh, counting all, all DEXs, and that compares to just over 120 billion in like December, January. Uh, so, you know, it's it's taking a hit from the height of the market, but... It's more than $100,000 per day. Yeah, I guess that's like a step, it's a step in the right direction, right? <laughs> Definitely, yeah. Just looking, you know, there was like this big bump up in like end of last year, but compared to um, the, just like all of, you know, 2020, like most of 2021 and before then, it's it's higher than it was. Um, so you know, I, I think I think you're you're right that that's been like a big um, evolution in just like the the deck story. Like there's like real users today, even in the middle of of this huge uh, downturn. Um, but speaking of decks versus sex uh, volume, it it while it's you know it remains you know around. 10%, uh, it has been dropping this year. Um, so I'm wondering, you know, why you think this is? It's like, are, are people just more comfortable and maybe going to a, a centralized exchanges in times when there's more volatility? Maybe it's like people are just like cashing out. Uh, so that's kind of what that's reflecting or why do you think kind of this proportion is, is changing a little bit? It's a good question. To give you the honest answer, I don't know. Um, but to take a stab at uh, guessing what might be causing it, uh, I think that a lot of the, like, um, you know, I guess like yield farming activities that were going on over the last uh, year, year and a half, I don't really remember, but, uh, you know, all of that subsidy and all of that kind of, you know, all of those tokens that were kind of funneling into the market, I think created a very, um, yeah, kind of like really kind of inflated the amount of, of economic activity happening on chain. Uh, and as, as there's like more economic activity happening, there's more people that are, you know, doing swaps on DEXs. There are more people that are like interested in getting into, you know, uh, the pickle token because they can earn 20% interest on it like uh a lot of that you know a lot of that kind of uh you know is starting to to cool off and i think um you know the entire crypto or the entire like ethereum web3 space is um you know learned a lot of interesting lessons from thing you know kind of like yield farming strategies and different ways of incentivizing activity um, but I think now, like we're you know starting to to go beyond it. Um, this you know is maybe getting a little bit off uh, off topic, but I'd, I'd love to for you to expand on that a little bit if if you could. Just uh, what what are those lessons? Like, what do you think is next after? Um, maybe yield farming and just like like the kind of liquidity incentives we saw in, in the past year or so, especially kind of post DeFi summer, that's kind of wearing off. Like, yeah, what are lessons from that? And and what do you think is is kind of the the next model that people are looking at? That's a good question. Um, well, okay. So uh, 
what was what were the learnings from from yield farming kind of uh, DeFi summer? Uh, so my my some of the takeaways that I've seen other people talk about and that like I, I also have observed are like um, a lot of projects that are you know launching uh, a token and you know you can stake your like Uniswap LP tokens or SushiSwap LP tokens and earn an interest rate by kind of depositing, uh, you know, staked liquidity. Um, those, those are, those subsidy programs are, they're really like growth programs that you would see at like a traditional tech company. It's like a user acquisition tool, like PayPal. I forget what, you know, what the number was, but like they gave new PayPal users like five or $10 for signing up uh, and getting a PayPal account. And I think that's like essentially what the a lot of these DeFi summer projects were doing is they were kind of bootstrapping not only like their project, but also their community. They were getting a bunch of stakeholders that were, you know, excited about maybe maybe excited about the project genuinely. A lot of probably a lot of mercenary um, folks that were looking to maximize yield. Um, but at the end of the day, it's it's like um, a lot of these projects were looking to more more or less acquire users with with tokens that they were emitting, and uh, I think it's yeah user acquisition is like I, I think it's pretty hard like to to do it effectively or efficiently. That's my understanding, and uh, if you look at like kind of like the customer acquisition cost. Uh, versus like lifetime value of community members that aren't actually really bought into like a mission or that like don't necessarily like believe in a project because it's going to accomplish something important for the world. They're just trying to, you know, chase yield or whatever. I, I think that we basically saw that it was, it's really hard to keep people interested and engaged in a project unless it's offering value without any subsidies. Um, that's not to say that there haven't been projects that have used token subsidies effectively. Um, and, you know, uh, there probably have been really effective campaigns. Um, but yeah, I, I, I think one of the bigger takeaways has been that like that that's not a way to build like a sustainable product that creates value for the world. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, and, and so if that's, that's kind of been uh, a lesson from this past cycle and the just decreased amount of activity that results from, you know, less interest in these programs and fewer uh, projects uh, actually implementing uh, these kinds of in incentives. Where, where do you think the next kind of wave of activity and liquidity for, for DEXs, where do you think that will come from? Um, well, so internally uh, at, at Xerox Labs, like on our team, we, we talk about like crypto going through a toy phase and yeah, like Chris Dixon, you know, has that quote, like 
many of the most important new technologies start out looking like toys or something like that. And, you know, I think that's very true in crypto where the things that have found product market fit and generated a lot of interest and excitement have, you know, a, a lot of it has been um, things that are like not necessarily changing the world. Like another quote, you know, Vitalik said like, you know, <laughs> Ethereum has gotten so far, uh, you know, some milestone was reached, but like, have we really earned it? And, you know, meaning like, has, has this technology actually started making uh, an impact on people's lives beyond, you know, the ability to access probably very speculative and not necessarily great markets. But um, so I think there will continue to be speculative use cases or interesting use cases that are real, but also maybe get really crazy and frothy. Um, but I'm also hoping that we'll start to see adoption of stable coins and decentralized exchanges and, you know, trustless lending borrowing solutions so that people that want to have an alternative to their local financial system that want to be able to have access to financial services that, you know, may offer some sort of important benefit to them, whether it's economic or an opportunity to be employed by a DAO and go work on something that they would never be able to work on locally. Like those are the use cases where I think we're going to see like a slow, you know, growth, slow, consistent growth over time. And it's going to take, take a lot of time for us to get there. But I think we're maybe starting to get to the point where it's becoming real. Um, what are, are, are some of the initial kind of signs that you're seeing of this just like real world um, adoption or kind of use cases emerging? Like what are some of the, the, the first kind of bridges that are, are being raised between crypto and, and just like, you know, like real kind of productive um, use cases that are useful for everyday uh, people? Yeah. Uh, so they are there. Um, there's, there's actually a number and I'm, I'm definitely going to like forget a, a really good example and people will be like, why didn't you mention that? And I'll be like, Oh yeah, I, sh I should have mentioned that. Um, I think one is the ability to just earn interest, uh, on like a lending borrowing protocol, like compound or Aave and, um, yeah, like it's a peer to peer system where like demand for like leverage or the desire to like short a specific asset. I, you know, I think a lot of in a lot of cases, the borrowers are people that are looking to like take a, some sort of financial position and they're paying interest to, you know, this latent capital that, you know, we, we know it's there. We know it's solvent. It's all viewable on chain. We know exactly how the protocol works know exactly what's going to like trigger a liquidation. Um, there's, you know, no risk of, uh, you know, funny business going on. I, I think that's a huge, huge and underrealized opportunity where, it, you know, if people have access to 
earning interest in like a relatively stable store of value, that's massive. And, you know, we're already seeing, the, you know, the, the interest is there, like the, the total amount of crypto that's like deposited into these protocols is, is massive. And they've been functioning, you know, well for, for years now. Um, so I, I think that's like one use case. Another use case is like actually the ability to borrow money from Compound or Aave for real life uses. So say, for example, if your money is, you know, denominated in crypto, uh, you can't get a mortgage with that. You can't go and buy, you know, get a loan to buy a house if your assets are in crypto. The banks don't acknowledge that as being capital uh, that they can treat as collateral. Um, you can go and deposit your crypto into Compound. You can borrow USDC if you're in the United States, at least, and you can go and and use that, convert that to dollars, and and you know you now have a a mortgage through the blockchain, um, and you know theoretically we we should be able to convert USDC to like every local currency, so people can do this all over. I wanted to let you know about A16C's new podcast called Web3 with A16C. We're excited to recommend what is sure to become one of the best podcasts for understanding and going deeper on crypto and Web3. It's hosted by Sonal Choksi, former showrunner and longtime host of the A16C podcast, along with frequent guest appearances and hosting by Chris Dixon. This new show is really about building the next generation of the internet. You can listen to Web3 with A16C today on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Be sure to follow it now. As we go deeper into DEXs, what has been the progress within the sector? We've seen some massive developments such as concentrated liquidity with Uniswap v3. But how does it work in practice? And what are Will's thoughts on some of the more under-the-radar innovations? Yeah, absolutely. Um, there's a lot going on in the deck space. It's, it's a very active space with a lot of innovation and a lot of competition. Um, yeah. So, you know, I think, yeah, going back to Uniswap V1, when, when it launched, uh, I don't know if it was like 2019 or maybe that was like when it really started to get a lot of traction, but Uniswap definitely changed the deck space. Like it brought in a massive flood of users and suddenly the space, you know, DEXs were just way more useful and being, you know, adopted um, by many different projects, thousands of different liquidity pools being created. And uh, that was massive for the space. There have been a variety of different automated market maker solutions. As you mentioned, like uh, Curve came in and, you know, made uh, stable coin to stable coin swaps like really capital efficient compared to this like constant product uniswap approach and then uniswap created this kind of hybrid automated market maker slash order book um, approach with concentrated liquidity and you know this massively increased the capital efficiency uh, and the amount of liquidity available uh, for yeah just markets, some of the more liquid markets, especially. Um, 
And it has also had, you know, the, the effect of like being, um, much, you know, attracting like a much more sophisticated set of participants, uh, liquidity providers that are able to, you know, yeah, I, you know, you know, frankly, you, you have to be pretty sophisticated, I think, to be a market maker on, uh, like concentrated liquidity system, unless you have like a really wide range. But in that case, you're, you know, getting a, a lot smaller kind of portion of the LP fees being generated. So, yeah, you know, as you mentioned, it's it's definitely more complex and challenging for the everyday community member to say, you know, just throw some tokens into this pool and, you know, they're contributing in equal proportion to everyone else according to their deposits. Um, and so, you know, the release of Uniswap V3 with concentrated liquidity huge it immediately took over most of the dex volume uh share so you know in a matter of months it uniswap v3 was doing like half or more of all dex volume on ethereum and uh yeah like it it was it definitely brought way more efficiency to these markets um i would say getting to like where the cutting edge is, like where we are today. And there's actually been a lot of cutting edge work going on over the years and just, you know, not all of it has ended up kind of making it to end users. But, um, you know, I, I think there's like the entire DEX game now is about how do we address minor extractable value or maximally extractable value uh, which gives, you know, the miner who has the ability to like arrange transactions into a block, how do we, you know, address their ability to kind of have like trading God mode and the ability to just arrange transactions in a way where they can just take, you know, a bunch of, of money from those people that are sending the transactions. Um, and it's a big challenge, but uh, the space has gotten to the point where, you know, MEV is kind of a mainstream topic now in, in the crypto space. Like it's something that is discussed quite actively. Um, Flashbots, you know, has offered like a private mining pool or like a private channel that kind of protects your transactions from being viewed in the public mempool and, and getting like sandwich attacked and front ran and all of these different MEV uh, challenges that will kind of extract money from people trading. Um, and, and so Flashbots is definitely a big step forward uh, it, it beyond that too, in terms of like how, yeah, transaction ordering, like you can have a lot more control over how different transactions are strung together with Flashbots, which is really cool. Um, and arguably like the more like compelling piece versus like the private minor channel. Um, CowSwap is doing uh, batching of transactions. Um, so if there are a bunch of people that are doing trades on a particular market and they happen to be wanting to trade the same asset or on opposite sides of the same market, instead of having both of them kind of 
get like, you know, cross over the bid ask spread, they can meet in the middle and they can both get a better price because they just happen to want to do a trade at the same time. Um, batching, you know, frequent batch auctions that, you know, that's kind of the, the technical term for this, this form of trade execution is, uh, you know, like a really compelling approach. Uh, you know, the, the challenge is that you have to have enough people, like a high frequency of people, you know, submitting trades uh, in the same period of time for you to really get the benefit of uh, price improvement. And is that related to to MEV or is, is that a, a separate um, like innovation, the these like batch orders? They are in the same universe. Uh, batching orders together um, is a way of executing trades that can potentially, you know, provide better pricing. It can it can technically help with MEV or help avoid MEV that you might have gotten if you'd went if you went to like an AMM versus just trading with a counterparty that wanted to trade with you at that very moment. Um, I don't think it's necessarily uh, eliminating MEV today, but I, it could get there. Um, okay. So the, the state of the art is, um, or I guess like a lot of the innovation now then is, is focused on, um, eliminating or avoiding or, or minimizing MEV for uh, traders on, on, on DEXs. And um, ways to do that are through flashbots using these kind of private pools. So uh, I guess like miners don't have access to your trades before they're executed. Um, and then like these batch uh, orders, is that right? Yeah, that is right. Yeah, frequent batch auctions. Yeah. But wait, there's one more amazing approach. <laughs> um, yeah, well, yeah, now I have to, of course, pitch um, our recently released uh, slippage protection. So uh, we recently launched uh, slippage protection within Xerox API. So it's a, it's a feature you can choose to turn on or off. Um, but slippage protection is, uh, you know, in my mind, it's like one of the biggest developments in the deck space that, uh, you know, has happened in, in quite a while. Um, and, you know, basically, uh, our team was curious to understand, you know, how does MEV impact the prices that, you know, zero X API users are getting or any, any DEX user, you know, how much is, is slippage reducing kind of, uh, the price they're getting from what they were told they were going to get in the user interface. Um, so, yeah, I guess to be more specific, there's kind of a, when you go to a DEX and you go onto the website, it shows you a price. That's like the quoted price. It's the sticker price that was advertised to you. Oftentimes that price is really just based on a snapshot of the most recently mined block. And it doesn't really tell you what price you're going to end up getting when your transaction is mined into the next block. Uh, that price can be very different. Uh, usually it'll be like distributed around the price that was shown to you. 
And so what we did is we studied this. We captured data on uh, like 700,000 trades that went through Xerox API and went through automated market makers that, you know, due to their price curve design, you can induce slippage. You can get a different price than you saw in the user interface. And what we found was like pretty shocking. Um, like we didn't go into this necessarily having like any assumptions of what would come out. Um, but what we found was that on average, you're, you know, inducing like uh, 20 basis points or more of slippage if you're trading over $100,000. And the, the relationship between how much you're trading through an AMM and the amount of slippage that you realize once your transaction is mined is it's a linear relationship. So slippage increases with the trade size. And that was, that was pretty shocking. Um, if, you know, uh, if this, uh, if there were no kind of malicious MEV bots extracting money from trades, you know, slippage should average at zero. There should sometimes be negative slippage, sometimes positive. It should be like a normal distribution. But instead, what we saw are that like MEV bots are just attacking these trades. They're just extracting every penny that they can and pushing it to the very limit of, of what price is acceptable. And users are just, you know, getting significant millions of dollars per month are being taken from them. For example, um, $27 million was lost to MEV in the last 30 days through Xerox API, uh, the 30 days leaning up to our launch of slippage protection. So slippage protection was the, the kind of second part to that. So we, we went and captured all this data because we were curious and interested. We're like, holy cow, this is a big, big problem. Like users are getting fleeced. And so what we did is we basically created the second part uh, uh, you know, of this solution, which is our slippage protection solution. It basically will look at you know, what are the uh, amounts of slippage that are likely to be induced for a specific trade uh, on a specific trading pair, specific trade size. And it will basically factor that into the order routing. So when it's, you know, when Xerox API is choosing to route you to liquidity source A or B, instead of routing based on like the quoted price that you see in the UI, it will route to get you the best executed price, which is what you see on the blockchain. Um, so I know that was like a really long explanation and quite a lot to unpack, but it, you know, I'm really proud of the team. I think it was like a really awesome achievement and, and all the Xerox API integrators and their users are benefiting. So I'll I'll start with kind of the the results of that, and then I I want to kind of follow up on exactly kind of how it happens. But so after this was implemented, so you you said uh, traders were losing twenty seven million in the last thirty days before slippage uh, protection. So how like what's the effect of this been on trades? Yeah, so we are we just launched slippage protection last week. And so we're we're still gathering data, and yeah, I'm I'm really excited to be able to show you know all of our our integrators how much we're saving their users uh, when we get more data coming in. Um, but we have like a really high degree of certainty around 
you know, how much slippage, uh, you know, will be induced just by looking at historical, you know, trades. Um, and yeah. Can, can you explain, um, again, exactly how, how this happens, how, how you're able to save uh, users money? Uh, so you said it, it's, you know, about kind of the difference between the kind of the sticker price um, of the trade and the actual kind of execution price on the blockchain. But can you explain that uh, a little more? I didn't really get it. <laughs> oh, yeah. No. Yeah. No worries. I it it's pretty hard, <laughs> kind of hard to explain to you and I'll, I'll do my best. I, I think like, OK, yeah. So uh, when you go to a decentralized exchange interface, say like your favorite one, like matcha.xyz, uh, Sorry, I had to plug it. Um, you know what? Uh, what you would have seen prior to using slippage protection is you would see you know a price in the user interface, and usually a user would say, "Okay, I'm getting this price that looks good to me. Let's move forward with the transaction." They sign that transaction with their private key, and then that transaction is transmitted to the blockchain, to the peer-to-peer -peer network, to be you know eventually mined into a block. What happens with uh, AMMs and slippage in particular is that the price that you saw in the user interface before you shipped it off to the blockchain, um, that, that's you know, the price that you know, was present at the end of the last block that was mined. So we're looking at the last block that was mined. We're like, okay, you know, this is the price that was on Uniswap at the very end of, uh, you know, the last block. That's the price that we're showing users. Uh, that's how every single DEX works, uh, every single DEX interface. And what happens is when you send your transaction off to the blockchain, other malicious participants in the network can view your transaction. They can view every transaction and they know what you're trying to do before you do it. And so what they can do is they can do something called a sandwich attack and they can put your trade in between two of their own trades, pushing the price up. So it's a very bad price. Uh, then your trade goes through, then they push the price back down. And this is, this is called a sandwich attack. It is, the bots are on top of every single tra transaction where it's possible to pull this off. Like if your transaction can be sandwiched, there's going to be a bunch of bots competing to sandwich it every time. And what, what happens is that like, if you look at many of these different trades and compare the price in the UI versus the price that was mined on chain, you know, what, what we find is there's like a negative average, a negative, you know, the distribution of outcomes of slippage is, is heavily shifted towards uh, negative slippage. So the user's losing money on average, um, or they're getting a worse price on average. Um, does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, that 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 part kind of like how like MEV works and and how kind of you know bots get get in front of uh, trades before uh, to to take advantage of of those opportunities, um, but then like 
yeah, like how do you fix it? Yeah, so we we simply base our routing on um, what will produce the best executed price on chain. So you know every time a user requests you know to trade some amount of tokens instead of pointing them in the direction of a liquidity source that provides you know just the best sticker price, we factor slippage into the sticker price so that we're able to show a price that is like reliable. You 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 know you are going to get what you see, uh, and you're on average you're not going to be suffering from that slippage the same way. Ah, uh, got it. Okay, so you're able to uh, uh, better determine the the actual price of the trade. So people, so traders aren't paying uh, more than what they're they're seeing on on the UI. Yes, exactly. Um. But does that mean that like are 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 like are traders actually beating bots? Like are 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 is are those sandwich attacks being avoided, or is it just like more transparent? Like do you just like understand kind of what the final price will be for the trade? Yeah, good question. So it's kind of both. Um, so it, you know when Xerox APIs routing is evaluating two routes. Instead of comparing the quoted prices for each of them, it will compare, you know, what it expects the price will be inclusive of slippage. And it will route to the one that, you know, provides the best executed price inclusive of that slippage. In some cases, what that means is like you'll go to a source that like doesn't off have any slippage. It could be like an RFQ or it could be like a limit order. Um, in other cases, you know, it might say, um, Okay, if you route your entire trade to this liquidity pool, you'll incur way more slippage than if we split that up and put it between two different liquidity pools, um, because that way, on average, you'll induce less slippage. Um, and so, you know, it's always looking to maximize the uh, the outcome for the user uh, that you know actually hits the blockchain. To swap crypto, a user has to choose among hundreds of DEXs on multiple networks, all offering different rates and fees. Do you want to avoid that hassle? Swap on OneInch, a DEX aggregator built to get you better rates than any single DEX. Enjoy unlimited liquidity across multiple networks and top-level security. Get OneInch on your phone now or swap on OneInch.io. We've looked into the overarching DEX space, but what about Xerox itself? Xerox API is currently the fifth largest DEX by trading volume. Matcha, made by Xerox, is the second largest DEX aggregator. But Xerox is structurally different to other DEXs, such as Uniswap. So how does it work? And what are some of the advantages and trade-offs? Yeah, definitely. Um, well, so this this piece has gotten like a little bit more uh, yeah, like nuanced over the years. Like uh, now, today, um, our team is a, you know, we're a proper kind of corporation, Xerox Labs. And Xerox Labs, you know, is the original kind of creator and steward of Xerox protocol, kind of in the same way that like Uniswap Labs is like the creator and steward of Uniswap protocol. Uh, Xerox protocol is like a peer to peer exchange protocol. So with you know automated market makers, uh, you're trading with a smart contract as your counterparty, 
Whereas with Xerox protocol, there is a, you know, an entity on each, there's a peer on each side of that trade. So you can go directly to your friend and email them this cryptographically signed order. They can go and complete a trade with you in a peer-to-peer manner. You can create like a peer-to-peer order book. You can do things like RFQ where uh, market makers are providing like customized quotes just in time. There, there are like many different ways to kind of propagate these protocol orders. Um, but at the core of it, it's this message format for trading in a peer-to-peer way. Um, and so we, uh, my co-founder Amir and I started working on Xerox protocol in October, 2016. Uh, we released the white paper on our Ethereum in February, 2017. Um, we met our very first teammate through Reddit. He read our white paper on, on there and reached out to us and was like, hey, this would be really useful for my project. We're like, you should come work for us um, and work with us. And, um, you know, now today we kind of view the DEX, we kind of view three layers to the DEX stack. There's like the application layer. So this is the consumer facing piece it could be like a, a dApp, like Matcha, or like a wallet, like MetaMask or uh, Coinbase wallet. It could be, uh, well, yeah, the application layer, kind of the execution layer. This is where Xerox API sits, um, where it's providing like liquidity aggregation for many different sources, like weaving it all together to achieve the best average price for the user. Uh, and you know now it has slippage protection. Then finally, the third layer that sits at the bottom is the trade settlement layer. So application, trade execution, trade settlement. And Xerox protocol is the trade settlement layer that sits underneath uh, the entire stack. Xerox protocol is is an open source project. It is DAO governed. It has a community treasury. Our vision for Xerox ever since 2017 has been that this should be public infrastructure that is governed and managed by a community of stakeholders. Uh, you know, <laughs> it, it feels like we're finally starting to see this model really become more viable. Like a lot of really great DAOs that are that are um, operating, you know, uh, pretty efficiently um, and autonomously. Uh, and you know, that's that's our vision for the protocol. Uh, it's a public good. It's open source. It's out there. We're one of the big stakeholders at Xerox Labs, um, but we're also building our own products on top of the protocol uh, as a way to generate revenue, but also drive growth and adoption. Um, yeah, so super interesting. And OK, so on the DEX protocol level, like Xerox protocol, that's where uh, this like peer-to-peer trade messaging system lies yeah that's correct okay um and so okay so the 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 protocol uh, uh, kind of works to connect uh, traders peer-to-peer rather than using kind of the this this like function um, that automatically sets sets a price like like traditional AMMs. Like, is, it, does, does it work more like an order book? Like, there's like different traders waiting to um, agree on a price, and and then kind of that the protocol matches those traders. 
Is that kind of the, the difference? Good question. So the the protocol is uh, it's really a messaging format. So it's not specifying. So uh, it, it we call it uh, off chain orders with on chain settlement. So it's this package of data that kind of specifies the details of a trade. You know what tokens are on either side, uh, how many, how long is this order? You know going to remain something that you can go in and fill. Um, but how that message is passed from one party to another or how it's stored and surfaced to the world, that is kind of out of scope for the protocol. It's really just focused on how do we support swapping arbitrary tokens in a way that is uh, in a system that is like modular, upgradable, can support like future community standards, future types of cryptographic signing operations. Um, and so it's really much more of like a upgradable system that accepts these messages. Um, how those messages are generated and then kind of find their way to the counterparty is uh, out of scope for the protocol. Um, but the ways that people have built systems on top of this protocol are, you know, there's kind of these formally peer-to-peer -peer systems like pseudoswap, um, you know, provided an interface where you could kind of manually enter in the details of a trade you wanted to do and click sign, and then you could like copy it and paste it to a friend over Slack. And then they could go and take that and fill that order on their end. Um, there were also, you know, uh, especially like in the early days of zero X, there were a lot of relayers that would take all these cryptographically signed orders and arrange them in the form of an order book and display them to you in kind of a traditional order book looking user interface. Um, and then there's like the RFQ systems where, you know, if a user wants to complete a trade, a market maker is pinged at that very moment, they generate and cryptographically sign a zero X order and it's, you know, shipped off to the user in a hundred milliseconds. And it's all the same, you know, it, the, the message passing semantics are flexible. Um, and the protocol itself is really just around, yeah, trade settlement and supporting, uh, like an ever evolving set of community standards. Ah, that's so interesting. Okay. So the, the protocol is there to just gather like all these messages um, around trades and then it's up to, you know, developers outside of 0x to take those messages and actually execute trades in whatever kind of way that they want. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And and so I think one one example that might resonate with a lot of folks is like OpenSea. So like OpenSea uses a very similar uh, like DEX approach. So same idea, there's these off-chain orders that are cryptographically signed and they sit in, you know, OpenSea's database and it says I'll swap, you know, this NFT for this amount of token and uh, when a counterparty comes along and wants to purchase that NFT, they take that cryptographically signed message from OpenSea's database and then they sign it as well and, and send it off to the zero or send it off to the blockchain for processing and settlement. Uh, same idea with Xerox protocol. 
Got it. And then is the Zero X API a way to access uh, those messages or like what's the, the connection? Yeah. So Zero X API is, is a complete like liquidity aggregation as a service solution. It's a hosted API endpoint for developers um, of apps and wallets. And what it does is it basically provides a way to support uh liquidity aggregated swaps in your wallet or in your app. And it sources it sources liquidity from uh, Xerox protocol orders, whether they're limit orders or RFQ orders. It sources liquidity from you know, 95 plus different liquidity sources across uh, seven different blockchains, seem to be eight different blockchains. So like if you want to get an asset and you want to get it at the very best price, like Xerox API is like, the most comprehensive solution, or at least you know that we we believe it is, uh, and uh, so you'll you'll always get like the best price available. Got it. Okay, so not just uh, it's not just a way to access Cirex protocol li- liquidity. It's it just it's a way to access all, li- all hopefully you know as much liquidity um, as possible. And then the final layer uh, that you guys built uh, the app layer, as you mentioned. Um, and that's where Matcha comes in. Is there a kind of uh, another application that, that you built or is Matcha the kind of the main one? So, so Matcha is our, yeah, our main like consumer facing product. We've also built user interfaces for like zero X governance and like a zero X trade explorer, et cetera. But yeah, Matcha is like its own consumer product that is for make, you know, opening up the world of tokens to everyone in the world. That, at least that's our, our goal. Nice, nice. Um, okay, and then before we, we uh, continue on uh, on Zero X, uh, I want to take a step back and um, um, just like have uh, your story. Uh, like how, why, why did you want to uh, create Zero X in the first place? Like what was your goal with it? Yeah. Uh, so, uh, I learned about Bitcoin on like Hacker News in like 2011, 2012. And um, a good friend of mine, uh, who knew my, uh, my wife, who was my girlfriend at the time, um, they also became super interested in Bitcoin. They wrote like a, a paper on Bitcoin for university, like back before anyone really knew what it was. Um, and, uh, you know, we both were just interested. We thought it was interesting technology. Um, my, so my wife, Linda eventually, you know, went on and joined Coinbase pretty early on. Um, it just, you know, seemed like Bitcoin was, you know, really had potential to like have a broad impact globally at that point. And it had really advanced from like, uh, a hobby project to like something that could be really impactful. And so she joined Coinbase and through her being at Coinbase, um, I was a grad student doing a PhD in structural engineering at UC San Diego. And I, I also spent like a year and a half at Los Alamos national lab in New Mexico doing like physics research. And while I was doing that stuff, you know, Linda was at Coinbase doing amazing things, you know, learning about all these cool things happening in the crypto space. And through her being at Coinbase, I just, you know, basically 
became much, much more interested in crypto. And when Ethereum came out, it felt like the most important invention since the internet. Like if, if you want to work on something that is going to have broad impact, Ethereum was like, in my mind, like one of the few opportunities that comes along in a decade or multiple decades to like have a really big impact. And so I dropped out of grad school and moved to San Francisco uh, with Linda. She was nice and didn't charge me rent. Um, so I could work on zero X and I could, uh, you know, <laughs> just focus on, uh, developing on Ethereum. I was initially developing a protocol for, uh, token, uh, for options, tokens on Ethereum. The thinking being that crypto is too volatile for most use cases. And if there was a way to hedge against that volatility, then, you know, with options tokens, then that could you know, make crypto more useful. Um, I met my co-founder Amir in San Francisco, you know, uh, later in 2016. And uh, we were introduced through our coworker who was the one that wrote the paper with Bit uh, about Bitcoin with Linda back at UCSD in like 2012 or something. And um, Amir and I, you know, were working on this options tokens project. We quickly realized that options tokens on Ethereum would be very useless without somewhere to go and trade them. And there was no way a centralized exchange was going to support, you know, tokens like for arbitrary, you know, options on arbitrary tokens on Ethereum is they would support Bitcoin and Litecoin pretty much. Um, and so it, you know, it became clear that like someone needed to build decentralized markets infrastructure on Ethereum so that any token on Ethereum could be exchanged. Um, we were working on this more so as like a proprietary decentralized exchange product that like, you know, we would, it would be more, you know, a proprietary product. But as we spent more time in San Francisco with like the Ethereum developer community and met a bunch of projects um, like Augur for prediction markets, Gnosis, you know, Melonport, MakerDAO, uh, what they all had in common is that they were working on a use case that required exchange functionality. And, you know, exchange wasn't their core focus, but it was a necessary building block. So, for example, you know, MakerDAO created their own proprietary decentralized exchange called OasisDex. And that was where market makers were able to provide the very first liquidity for DAI, the stablecoin. And they were building this out of necessity. Uh, same with, you know, Augur and Gnosis. They both required markets to trade these prediction market outcomes. And so Amir and I, you know, became very clear to us that, like, there are going to be so many use cases that require exchange functionality. There are going to be billions of tokenized assets that require exchange functionality. And so instead of building a product that is a decentralized exchange, we should build an open source public good exchange platform that anyone can build on top of and that can standardize kind of exchange functionality. And so, you know, that was like the, that was the initial vision for Xerox protocol. And, uh, and yeah, now we're here.
When you shop for plane tickets, you probably use Kayak, Expedia, or Google Flights. So why would you limit yourself to just one exchange when you trade crypto? To make sure you're getting the best possible price, you should use a DEX aggregator like Matcha. Matcha routes your orders across all the various DeFi exchanges on Ethereum, Polygon, Avalanche, BSC, Phantom, Celo, and Optimism to provide the best possible prices without taking any commissions. Matcha also has integrated fiat on-ramps, so you can buy directly with your credit or debit card and uses smart order routing that splits your order across multiple liquidity sources. When looking at the roadmap, has Xerox's vision evolved over time? Where will it be in 20 years? And in the medium term, what are the key milestones and projects you're aiming to roll out? Has, has that uh, vision changed over time? Like what's, um, what's kind of the, the, the big, um, you know, like 10, 20 year uh, idea? Like where, where, where would you want Zero X to be? So our, so first of all, like our, our mission is to like create a tokenized world where all value can flow freely. So Zero X, you know, Labs is an organization, that's our mission. We want to see a world where all forms of value are tokenized on public blockchains like Ethereum. So fiat currencies, stocks, bonds, derivatives, startup equity, uh, video game items, uh, airline miles, internet reputation points. Like we envision billions of different tokenized assets um, existing on blockchains and are, you know, that's the future that we've been working towards since the beginning. Um, and, you know, it feels like in the last few years, we've really seen like a lot of validation of this idea that tokenization is like the killer app for blockchains. It's the movement and the transmission and the exchange of value. And so, you know, our focus has only, our, our conviction has only grown stronger in this like tokenized world. I love it. Um, and then to, to start wrapping up, um, so that's kind of the, the, the big long-term mission. What about just, um, you know, the, the, the next specific kind of milestones and uh, like projects that uh, you're working on? I know that uh, you recently raised a, a pretty large uh, round with Greylock, uh, I believe 70 million. Um, so like, what, what are you planning to do with all this cash? Yeah, we were, you know, fortunate to get to work with a really great group of, uh, supporters. Uh, yeah, Greylock let our series be around. And, uh, the reason why we raised capital is because, uh, in order to achieve, uh, two things. So, supporting this transition to like a multi-chain or cross-chain blockchain ecosystem that requires an immense amount of building capacity. Uh, so at the beginning of 2021, we, it became clear to us that like, okay, the transition to multi-chain is happening now. Ethereum has gotten such strong product market fit. There's so much demand for block space on Ethereum that it's way too expensive and it's pricing out so many different use cases, all of these users are going to spill over into other networks like Polygon, like at the time Binance Smart Chain was like one of the biggest uh, ones. And, you know, now there are many different layer ones and layer twos 
that, you know, have significant adoption. And so, you know, we, it, it became clear to us at the beginning of 2021, this transition is happening. And as an organization, we need to be really focused on supporting, you know, what we think is going to be like a 10 X or more expansion in the size of the ecosystem, um, through, you know, new and more accessible and less expensive blockchains coming, uh, uh, to market. And so, you know, we, um, you know, a large part of why we decided to raise our series B round was so that like we could scale our existing product offering and, uh, while supporting basically this like fractal scaling and fragmentation of the blockchain ecosystem, uh, you know, now instead of aggregating liquidity across, you know, 10 different liquidity sources on Ethereum, 20, 20 sources on Ethereum, there's like seven different blockchains that we have to aggregate liquidity across. And each one of those blockchains has like different tokens to support and different ecosystems to support. And so, you know, for us, it was like a matter of how do we support the growth of the entire ecosystem uh, as effectively as possible. And that just requires more engineering and product and go to market resources. So how, like, how big is your team now and, and how big do you want it to get to actually, you know, be able to achieve all this? Uh, so right now we're around 65 people. Uh, and, uh, I, you know, we've been around for almost six years now. And I'd say like throughout that entire time, we've taken a pretty measured approach to growth and hiring, um, really only growing when, you know, there was clearly a gap that needed to be filled. Um, and I would say that like, we continue to be pretty measured in our hiring. That being said, we do have about 20 or 30 open roles. Um, we're actively hiring. And so if you're interested in considering one of the roles we have open, check them out at zeroax.org slash jobs. Um, and yeah, so we're, you know, we're 65 ish and we're looking to grow by 20 or 30, um, roles in, in the next six to eight months. So uh, we have, we currently support uh, seven blockchains. So Ethereum, uh, Polygon, Binance Smart Chain, uh, Optimism, uh, Celo, uh, uh, others, uh, Arbitrum coming soon. Um, and yeah, I think like the biggest one that, you know, the most heavily requested blockchain that we don't support is like Solana. And so big growing community on Solana, you know, lots of, uh, you know, activity and excitement around the use cases that are being built on Solana. Uh, it is a completely different kind of tech stack from the one that we are using to scale across different EVM blockchains. So it requires, you know, it would require a specific technical skill set that, uh, you know, we're, we're hiring for. So if, you know, someone wants to come and join our team and help us, uh, you know, support the Solana ecosystem as well, you know, 
submit submit a <laughs> uh, send us a message and and we can talk. Um, it's pretty telling that the the demand for Solana uh, is such that you know projects are having to hire specifically to build that out to build out that capacity. Yeah, yeah, it is. Um, yeah, I mean, they, there's a lot of demand for for blockchains and block space, and Solana has done a pretty incredible job onboarding new users uh, to to the ecosystem. And yeah, I'm about to wrap up, but just like curious uh, on on Solana, like you keep hearing like the, the main headlines uh, besides kind of Solana phone and, you know, all this activity is also just like the outages. Like how does that like, I don't know, are you worried about kind of just like performance of, of the Solana blockchain? Yeah, that's a fair question. And I think that this probably goes beyond just outages. Also, like a lot of people in the crypto space are, you know, have strong uh, like opinions or philosophies on like the important properties of a blockchain, the security guarantees, the consensus mechanism. And, you know, for us as well, like we're true missionaries, we want to see decentralized finance and markets uh, be available to everyone in the world and never, you know, go down. Um, and decentralization is important. Uh, at the same time, decentralized networks like Ethereum are so successful that they're too expensive to use. Like people are just willing to pay so, so much to use it. Uh, and, you know, in order to like support this massive uh, wave of new adoption, people that are setting up self-custody wallets for the first time, you know, for, for us, it's all a win-win. Like these are all people that are going to be self-custodying their assets that are going to be educated about blockchain technology and, you know, they're going to experience some of the rough edges that come with brand new cutting edge technology. Um, so, you know, we're not dogmatic about, um, you know, which blockchains users decide to use. We're more so invested in getting them onboarded to the space and they can kind of educate themselves and make their own decisions about which blockchains they want to use and why over time. Um, when it comes to things like outages for a blockchain, like I, I do think those are, those are significant, uh, that has a significant impact on like user experience. And so people that are using Solana and, you know, maybe there is like network congestion. Well, now they're going to learn about network congestion and how good is that? Like we're, we're educating users about this technology that they're using. Uh, so in my mind, you know, all of this technology is rapidly evolving and it's pretty hard to like make a judgment call on, you know, technology today because you never really know what it might end up looking like in three years. Yeah. Yeah, totally. Okay. And then now to really wrap up a final question, um, Will, uh, how are you defiant? Okay. Yeah. I think, okay. The, you know, one of the ways that, uh, I'm defiant that our team is defiant is that, you know, we don't necessarily buy into the current way that the world does things. Uh, we want to hire people that have exposure from all different cultures and parts of the world. We want 
the very, you know, best and most motivated and aligned people to come and spend time working with us. Uh, it doesn't matter, you know, which college you went to. It doesn't matter what, you know, you're, uh, <laughs> we're, you know, we just want folks that are bought in and, and long-term aligned with our values. And so we have team members from all over the world and, uh, it's, yeah, I, you know, couldn't, couldn't have, couldn't be better. So you want other, other defiers, uh, as part, as part of the zero X team. <laughs> Nice. Um, well, thank you so much for, for taking the time. This has been awesome. Uh, such an interesting conversation on, on Texas, on, on Zero X, and, and just like on this uh, amazing, big, uh, tokenized vision for the world, which I also share. So thanks again. It's been a pleasure. <laughs> <laughs>